Well, I am excited to start a new year, and I have actively been trying to make some changes myself and trying to be a better me. And Mark had a good word this morning. He said, listen, don't start a New Year's resolution. Uh, Just renew your mind, as the Scripture calls us to uh, in Romans chapter 12. Renew your mind. And New Year's resolutions are a dime a dozen, and oftentimes they are easily started and rarely followed through with. They're, easy, they're rarely completed. Uh, although, I, I'm, not, I'm not against setting your mind to a new goal. I have a few myself. And I want to do some things this year differently than I did last year. I want to do a few things this year that I didn't do well last year, even though I tried. Uh, but most importantly, I want 2022 to be a year that I pay more attention to the Lord, that I spend more time in Scripture, and I, knew a, and I do a better job of showing those around me the love that Christ has shown me. That I think, that for me, if we can focus, now that's very broad, it's very general, and I think that we need to dial and focus our goals in in order to accomplish those things, because if we try to hit too broad of a target, then we don't really know what we're doing, we don't know where we're going, and we kind of miss out on, I think, easy ways to fulfill those tasks. So just a few of mine are, I want to read more books in 2022 than I did in 2021, and good books too. Uh, I want to do a, a better job at loving my wife and being there for my children. Now that's, again, that's a big, broad target, and so some ways that I can specifically do that is, is that I want to do a better job about doing uh, more consistent devotions with my family. And, you know, for me, it's kind of like I, I'm an all or nothing kind of guy, so I've got to be careful. So, um, you know, I don't, I don't need to hammer them so hard that I'm like teaching doctrinal courses <laughs> at the kitchen table. But just that we're talking Jesus and walking through some scripture and just doing a verse or two, you know, here and there. And, you know, to love my wife, just, I want, I think one of my issues with my wife is, and just to kind of be a little transparent with you, is that I could just slow down a little bit and pay attention to the little things, you know, and not, and just not be so grumpy all the time, right? And I've been trying to do a better job at that the past few weeks. I knew New Year's was coming and the Lord's been working on me anyway and convicting me about a few things. And just to be, I, I think at the end of the day, just be nice. You know, if I could just, I mean, really, uh, and it really helps so much, right? Uh, because for some reason, when I'm mean, she's mean, right? Uh, and, you know, when I'm nice, she's less mean. You know what I'm saying? So, and I think it works the other way. But here's the key. I can't change her. I can only change me. But the, but the golden thing is, is that when I change me, it helps her to change her, right? And so... We, we're doing pretty good right now, but I want it to be even better, and I want for you to do even better as we move into the new year as well. So let's pray for that, and let's set our minds on that and see if we can just do a better job of loving Christ and loving each other, right? I think we can do that together. So we're going to start, uh, and we're, they're trying to get the, the laptop up on the screens, and I hope that we can do that. Do, do you need me to do anything that might help you to do that? Okay, yeah, we're going to roll on here in a second, but I would like to get it up there. It'll just be helpful, but this might help right there. Okay, now it should be displaying. I don't know if you can see it back there. If not, I'm just going to roll through, so 
we don't have a ton of time. And it's going to be a pretty in-depth study. I, I've been talking to a couple of uh, the guys here at the church, and what I want to be careful of is to not get so so technical and theological that we lose all practical significance in the book because Hebrews is a massive theological treatise. Now, Hebrews is a little bit different than the other books in the New Testament in that it's written more like a sermon. And so when you read the book uh, of Hebrews, it's a letter. And, and most people agree that we can characterize it as a letter because it has many of the same attributes and characteristics as a letter, but it doesn't have the salutation. It doesn't have these greetings and things that a, that a normal letter would have, but it kind of reads as a letter. Most commentators would agree, and I, and I certainly agree, that when you read Hebrews, it's really written more like a sermon. It's at least attached to a sermon that was preached or seemingly or something along those lines. And so when you read the book of Hebrews, it really flows and reads and hits hard like a sermon, like somebody would have delivered it to a congregation like it was a sermon. Now, what I want to do is as we move through the book of Hebrews, I'm going to give you an introduction today and I want to touch and I want to do it briefly. I just want to touch on who wrote the book of Hebrews or do we know who wrote the book? Uh, so authorship, I want to talk about the purpose of the book a little bit. I want to talk about the date and when it was written and some things like that. Just some kind of uh, housekeeping things that I think that you should know. So if you pick up the Bible, you read the book of Hebrews, you can say, oh, well, I, I have an understanding of who wrote this or I don't have an understanding of who wrote this or whatever. And so that way you can know where you're starting from and it, you'll have a little bit of information as you read the book. So but the first thing I want to do is I'm going to invite Titus up, and he's going to read for us. Come on up, Titus. Titus is going to read for us the first chapter of Hebrews. So we're going to read all of chapter 1 of Hebrews. Check, check. Oh, here, this one's working now. All right, so Titus is going to read chapter 1 for us. If you'll all stand to your feet for the reading of God's Word. You want to hold it or you just want to read here? All right. Now, I asked him if he wanted to do this. I didn't make him, okay? So here we go. Chapter 1 of Hebrews. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than, their, than theirs. For to which of the angels did, good, did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprighteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God 
your God has anointed you with with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your, fe- for your feet. Are they not all the ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Thank you. Thank you, sir. Good job, son. I want to take a look now at just some introductory uh, things. Uh, Have we got this up yet? Do you see it? Nope. That's not it. (laughs) All right, so first of all, and I can keep working on that, is the recipients of the letter. Who was it that received the book of of Hebrews, and uh, who was it written to? So we have a a ton of information in the book itself, and in your Bible, I'm sure it's titled Hebrews, which kind of gives it away of what most people think, or who most people think the recipients of the letter are. Uh, who, who it's written to, and that is to Hebrews, to Jews. And so there is plenty of evidence. Now, everybody doesn't agree that it was written to uh, Jews or Jewish Christians, but for the most part, most commentators agree, most theologians agree that it was written to a group of Jewish Christians. So those that received this letter sermon were most likely Jewish Christians that were tempted to go back to Judaism. And so there are several things in the book that make us think that it was written to Jewish Christians. It's never explicitly stated in the book itself that it was written to Jewish Christians. But if you think about the flow and the power and the, and, and the stance of the book, it would make sense that it was a Jewish audience. Number one, I think the most powerful argument is that the book of Hebrews is the book in the New Testament that has the most powerful uh, Old Testament teaching and and the most Old Testament references. The entire book of Hebrews is one big uh, work of interpretation on the Old Testament. So all the way throughout, from the beginning to the end of the book, the author is basically saying, look, you have understood and been taught about Moses, about the Levitical system, about the priesthood, about all of these different things, about the Old Covenant. But I say to you that in this new administration, in this new covenant, here's how you are to understand all of those things. And more importantly, this is how Jesus Christ relates to all of those things. And that's what the author is doing. Now, Tied up in the entire book of Hebrews is many, many, many warnings. As a matter of fact, this is why uh, oftentimes it's thought of as a sermon. Because what is a sermon? A sermon is a, uh, it is a work or a teaching and address to an audience that says, look, this is, and, and so as I preach sermons, here's what I try to do and what most pastors and preachers, I think, should try to do. So I try to get to know you as much as I can, and, I, and I, I try to gauge where you guys are, and I'm doing this to myself too and my own family, and you should be doing this to yourself and your family. So I'm trying to gauge, hey, where are these guys at? What are they struggling with? What culture are they uh, living in? 
What were their previous commitments in the life that they had before they became Christians? Are they tempted to go back to that? Are they dabbling in any other things? Do they have any functional saviors in their life that are pulling them away from the Savior Christ Jesus? Are they trusting in anything else for salvation that can only come through Messiah? Is there anything hindering them from pursuing after Christ? And once that information is uh, readily available to me or I have, uh, I have become aware of it, then I am to tailor whatever message it is from the Word of God. Obviously, it, it needs to be biblical. Hebrews is based in Old Testament teaching from the law and the prophets with a, with a New Testament, New Covenant Christological lens that the author is saying, look, you're very aware of Moses. You were absolutely committed to that system, and that's great. But what I am saying to you is that that system is fading and vanishing away, and here's how that system was actually pointing forward and foreshadowing this system and this administration, and Christ is the fulfillment of all of these things. These were shadows and types and, and replicas, and they were built according to the heavenly things. But now in the New Covenant, we are the reality of the heavenly things through Christ. And so the Old Testament foreshadows what is here. And so as those things become, you're made aware of those things, then according to the scriptures, you can address the audience with biblical information and with insight to who Christ is to say, listen, here are some, here are some things that you're dabbling in that are problematic that you need to be careful of. Not because I'm ruling or dominating you and saying, you better do this or you better do that. No, but because if you continue down that path, it's going to go bad for you because you're heading away from Jesus Christ. And, and I'm calling you back to the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't go that way. It's destructive. Go this way toward Christ for in him is life and everything else. And that's what Hebrews is. It is an address to a Jewish Christian audience who is tempted to go back to Judaism, who has some of them have gone back to Judaism. And what the author of Hebrews is going to say is, don't go back to the lesser things. Moses was great. The high priesthood was great. The Levitical system was great. But those were meant to be temporary, to point you to Christ. Don't go back to an inferior system and an inferior covenant. Move forward into Christ who is far superior to all of these things. It is, a war it is a book of warning. It is also a book of encouragement. For how could you be any more encouraged than to hear that Jesus Christ is God, that Jesus Christ is our final sacrifice once for all, that Jesus Christ is our high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus Christ, who is God, has come down to take on flesh and added humanity to himself that he might be tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Why? Just for the mere purpose of being able to be the mediator and to be able to sympathize with those who he would save. We serve a high priest who is not just a human, who is fallible, who is sinful, and has to offer sacrifice for himself and try to cleanse himself. No, we serve a high priest who was the perfect lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Because he had no sin to be cleansed from. He was the sin cleanser. 
He gave himself as a perfect sacrifice. This is the thrust of the book. It, the book is saying, listen, don't go back. Move forward. Don't go back to an old system. And the book actually says that it's obsolete and ready to vanish away. He says, no, look to the Jesus, who is the administrator of a new covenant that's built on new promises. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. So the recipients are Jewish Christians who were tempted to go back to Judaism. The author, here's a little more evidence, the author seemed to know his audience and that with which they struggled. We already kind of talked about that a little bit. He talks to them very personally. You know, a lot of times Paul, when he wrote a letter, he would just write a letter for general use that were to be passed around to different congregations with general information. This seemed to be tailored a little bit more to a specific audience. Not that it wasn't applicable to every church. Obviously it is. We're preaching it 2,000 years later. But it was addressed. He knew these people. He sent greetings from Italy. He, he seemed to know what his audience... He, he he knew that some of them should be teachers by now, but they were still given to the elementary things. He knew that some of them had tasted the heavenly gift, but they had went back, and so there now remained no sacrifice for them. So he seemed to know them. And then uh, lastly on this point, that they're being persuaded by the massive gap of supremacy between Christ and the most fantastic aspects of the Old Covenant. So the, the, the author of Hebrews isn't going to say, listen, forget about the Old Covenant. It's worthless. It's sorry. It was no good. It was sinful. Uh, Judaism and Israel, all of that, that's stupid. I can't believe that you uh, ever did that. No, he's not going to say that at all. What he's going to say is, is Moses is amazing, that the, 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 the high priestly order is phenomenal, that the Levitical system was great, but it was incomplete. And all throughout the book, we will see how he will show. Now, Hebrews is attacked oftentimes by those who have a, by those who have a high regard for the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. It's really, if you have a, an extremely high view of the Levitical system, of the nation of Israel as a national ethnic identity group of the people of God, or the Levitical system, the sacrificial system, the, the, uh, the high priestly roles, Moses, because what Hebrews is going to do is Hebrews is going to pull in all of that information into a new covenant context, and it's going to say, listen, Moses was great, but Moses did not deserve the glory that Christ deserves. That the high priest was great, that's fine. He did what God called him to do. But part of what God called him to do was to be a foreshadow to the Christ that would come and be the last high priest. And it's necessary that Christ is the last high priest. Not just because the work is completed and now Christ remains forever as a continual intercessor for us. That's necessary for our salvation. If Christ is no longer the high priest and we have to have another high priest, which was the problem with the old administration, is that the high priests were only human. They were fallible and they were sinful. So they had to offer sins for themselves over and over and over and over and over because the, sin, the sacrifices weren't good enough and the people offering them weren't good enough. Christ, on the other hand, is the perfect offerer. He's the perfect high priest and he offers the perfect sacrifice. So he's the perfect high priest offering the perfect sacrifice, which is himself. He offers up himself. And since it is perfect, it's once for all. Once for all sacrifice and once for all high priest. There is no need for any further. And what he's saying is, he's like, those were incomplete. They were problematic. Now, don't think that I'm suggesting that the law in and of itself was unrighteous. No, we know that Paul teaches us in Romans and in many other places that the old covenant, the old law was perfect, 
for what it was. That's what people miss out. That's what those who would have too high of a view of the law of Moses, the Levitical system, and the Old Covenant, when they hear me say that the law of, of Moses was not perfect, they hear in, in the grand scheme, it, it wasn't eternally perfect. They, they hear me saying that it was bad or it was sinful. No, that's not what I mean. That's not what Paul means. But that the law of Moses was perfect for what it was and for what it was meant to do. What was it meant to do? It was meant, number one, to show everyone that they were not perfect, that they were sinful. Because the law of God is perfectly written to show you that you can't fulfill it. It's perfect in that. It was a perfectly written national constitution for the nation of Israel. But what it was not, and it didn't need to be perfect on it for eternal salvation because it was never intended for that. It was intended to point you to the administrator of a new covenant and a new law that would be brought about by God himself coming in Jesus Christ, the humble servant. And in its job in doing that, that's what it was incomplete, to bring about salvation. It was to point forward and to foreshadow Christ who was to come. I can't wait to get into that because... As, as you hear me say that, and as some who, some who I've have debated, um, those who would be given to Torahism or law obedience, and not just law observance, we still hold that there's freedom if a Jew or even somebody else wanted to still uh, keep some of the Passovers and the meals and the days, that that's perfectly fine, as long as they understand that it doesn't bring about any type of sanctification, any type of justification, but it is more of a traditional honoring and praising and lifting up uh, what God has done. That's fine. But it would be more in debate and conversation with those who would tend to hold the law of Moses to a place to say, if you don't keep this, then you're not right with God. That's a problem because all of that is summed up and all of the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ Jesus. The greater fulfillment of the law is to live and abide in Christ. That's the greater fulfillment of the law. But here's, here's the key. We understand that all of these point us forward to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's what the author is doing. He is saying, look to Christ. Christ is the completion and the fulfillment of all these things. So we've talked about the recipients. Let's talk about the author. Now, the author is a little tricky. Um, for years and years, I would have just said the author was Paul. I didn't really even contend that. I, didn't, I, didn't, I had looked at it. I didn't really look in depth at it. But I have been convinced now that the author is not Paul and that the author is obviously someone else. I don't know who, okay? And the bottom line is, is that nobody really knows who the author is. The, the, the work itself, the letter, sermon, book, whatever you want to call it, it never names the author. And there's only a few things that kind of give us a hint at to who the author could be. Luke has been uh, proposed as an author. Some people hold to Luke being the author. Uh, some evidence against that. I don't really think it was Luke. It, it very well could have been Luke. I don't really know. Um, another one that suggests, and I'll just mention these three. The first person to say or mention the author, who the author might be for Hebrews, is Clement of Alexandria, which means that the book is a really early book, by the way. But he said that it was Paul. But it seems as if 
through reading his writing that he had just kind of accepted it as Paul because it was a brilliant piece of work. It, it took a massive mind to write, and it really would have. It would have took a massive mind to write the book of Hebrews. If you've really studied Hebrews, I mean, it will boggle the mind how deep it is. I was talking to another pastor friend of mine, telling him I'm going to start this series today, and I was joking with him that you could swim around in the book of Hebrews for 10 years easy. You know, I'm not saying we're going to preach in Hebrews for 10 years, but you never know, right? But it is a massive book, and it is so intrinsic, and it is so detailed, and it's, it's just amazing. But anyway, so that was seemingly why Clement of Alexandria may have said Paul. And that wasn't contested for quite a while by most uh, early church fathers. Some, some would have disagreed. Um, Apollos has also been set forth as maybe a potential author for it. And I, and I think I'm most convinced by the Apollos argument that Apollos had wrote the book uh, for a, a few different reasons. One I will point out, and we could go on, I don't want to spend a ton of time here, but check out Hebrews chapter uh, 2 verse 3. And, and this one verse I think gives us an idea of why I would never say that it, I wouldn't say that it was Paul anymore. And this, this one verse right here is why. Listen to what it says in Hebrews 2 3. It says, how shall we escape if we neglect such great a salvation? Now listen to this. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. Now if you know anything about Paul, you know he went to bat to prove that he did not hear his gospel from anyone else. That he got it firsthand from the Lord. He wasn't taught by anyone. Now, he did go to training after he received his revelation on the road to Damascus. He spent time alone with the Lord. And the Lord revealed to him, because that was his whole uh, apostolic argument. He said, I'm an apostle as much as anybody else because I didn't hear this from men. I heard this from the Lord. I heard from the Lord. Now, that in my own mind, now you can argue with me if you want to, I don't mind. But that one verse right there says, and it was attested to us by those who heard. I don't think Paul would have ever said that. I really don't. Paul, he heard from the Lord and he laid out from the Lord. Now, uh, the other thing is, is that the book of Hebrews is written in very eloquent Greek. Now, this has been suggested by some commentators that it probably wasn't written by a Jew. Although, I don't think that that's a legitimate argument because those Jews, they would have had the Septuagint, they would have had the works that were written in Greek, they would, they would have most likely been very fluent in Greek. But the, the point that the commentator was making is that Paul's Greek, when he writes, is not eloquent Greek. It's kind of rough, it's kind of, um, uh, it's just there. It's not as eloquently written with this flow and this masterful thing. That's why this idea that Apollos may have been the one to write the book. He comes out of Alexandria. He, he was very wise. He was sharp. You read that in Acts. And he, he would have had a very detailed understanding of the Old Testament as well. So take it for what it's worth. At the end of the day, um, we don't know who wrote the book. Um, Luther held that Apollos was the author. And I think that that was, to me, probably one of the best answers that I'd heard. But uh, the fact is, we don't, we don't know who the author is. And that's okay. We don't have to have uh, the name of the author. I will say on that point, if that bothers you, it shouldn't bother you at all. The authority and the uh, canonicity or the, um, the inspiration, that believing that the book of Hebrews is inspired, is, um, has been accepted uh, long, uh, a very long time. One of the first books, books accepted as canonical. So... Hebrews is legit. 
the date of the book, um, I would I would believe and understand that the the book is never actually dated. You know, none of the books are dated. You know, they didn't they didn't say, well, in 65 A.D. You know, that that wasn't a a thing really. So we have to kind of pull out some information of the book and kind of place it in a time frame of when it was probably written. The most compelling uh, argument that I've seen in position, and as I just read through the book is that the book of Hebrews was almost certainly written before 70 A.D. And the reason that would be the case is a couple of things. In chapter 12, verse 4, and we're going to get through all this. We're going to go through the chapters and everything, obviously. But in chapter 12, verse 4, the author writes, talking to his audience, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. So it seems as this came before the great persecution where the Roman Empire came against the Jews and uh, uh, destroyed them. There was a, a great revolt where Jews rose up and fought back against Rome and ended up that uh, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And there was massive casualties. And there were Christians who were literally uh, had uh, stakes rammed up there behind through their body, soaked in oil and set on fire to light the streets of Rome up. Human candles, human torches. And so the fact that that's not mentioned, certainly with such, and I put this in my notes to share with you, the fact that, okay, so remember the flow of the book and the purpose of the book. The flow and purpose of the book is to look at a Jewish Christian who had seemingly been very a, a very close adherent to the old covenant, Mosaic system, Levitical system, and would have been uh, a devout Jew according to those standards. That Jew seemingly had become a Christian and turned to Christ and accepted the gospel. And he was being tempted to turn back to that old covenant, back to that system. And the author is saying, no, don't go back. Look to Christ for you're wanting to go back to Moses, but Christ is superior to Moses. You're going to want to go back to the sacrifices, but Christ is the once for all sacrifice. You want to go back to the old covenant, but the new covenant is built on better promises. And so he's pulling it back over here. How strong and how powerful would it have been if the temple had already fallen to say the temple is destroyed, the old covenant is gone, it's no more, it's been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. The mere fact that the destruction of the temple is not mentioned almost assuredly puts it somewhere before 70 AD. And many commentators have suggested maybe 66 to 70, and maybe that close because it, it seems as if there was some revolts there was some persecution there was some some fighting but it hadn't escalated to the point of destruction in 70 AD so close to 70 AD but not not yet shedding blood not yet fighting to that degree and one other thing in that too and this theme will come out as well in Hebrews chapter 8 in verse 13 it speaks of the old covenant um, that it is that is becoming obsolete, and what is obsolete is ready to vanish away. Now, what we're going to say about the Old Covenant becoming obsolete and ready to, van uh, 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 ready to pass away is you see this movement of time and this movement of uh, administration. So here's the idea that the Old, covenant, uh, the Old Covenant was a Judaical or a Judaistic reality that these people were rooted in. So they were a part of the Old Covenant. They were a part of the Levitical system. They had high priests over them. They were offering sacrifices in the 
temple and even in the time of writing of Hebrews and we know this is the fact in Acts and in the Gospels that the Levitical system was still intact the sacrificial system was still intact in the days of Jesus we know that Jesus himself offered we know that Paul offered we know that Paul had a Nazarite vow we know that the temple was still in use and sacrifices were still being made now Paul makes an argument of what that means and how you are to do that and what you are to believe about the fact that you are making these sacrifices but it was still in normal practice even as Hebrews is written it seems but what the author is saying is, is that, but all of that in fully encompassed, all of that old covenant system is about to completely vanish away. What was the marking point of when it would be impossible to make sacrifices anymore? The destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Without a temple, you can't make sacrifices. And so the author is making this push that the old covenant was great for what it was designed for, but all of that pointed forward to the fulfillment in Christ, who is the administrator of a new covenant built on better promises. And all of those things are becoming obsolete and ready to vanish away. And in 70 AD, those things vanished away. Now, I'm not going to belabor the point of being able to just out of conscience and desire to keep feast days and Sabbaths and all of that. I've already taught on that. We grant it that as long as that's not for salvation and you're just remembering God and, and celebrating and honoring, that's perfectly fine. It's not any different than us, say, celebrating Fourth of July to commemorate our freedom. Uh, that's fine. As long as you don't see it as a means of sanctification, salvation, or anything like that. So instead, the, the sacrifices temple and old covenant system was becoming obsolete, growing old, and ready to vanish away. That's Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13. Therefore, the book was probably written around 66 to 70 A.D., somewhere in there. Now, what was the purpose of the book? I've already touched on this a good bit as I've been moving through this, but just to put it in one statement, and I wish this was up there. I'll have it up for you next week. I'll figure it out. But the purpose of the book, if you, if you want to write this down, just a sentence, the purpose of the book is to warn Christians, specifically Jewish Christians, that turning back to their old lives would be futile and sinful and to exhort them to remain faithful to Christ who is far superior to everything that came before and anything that would ever come after. Let me read it one more time. The purpose of the book is to warn Christians, specifically Jewish Christians, that turning back to their old lives would be futile and sinful and to exhort them to remain faithful to Christ who is far superior to everything that came before and anything that would ever come after. Well, sorry, I had planned to have it up on the screen. Jesus is perfect, don't go back. How about that? Amen. <laughs> okay, if you need it, come up to me after and, and I'll give it to you. The book is absolutely, okay, now I wrote that, I'll read it a couple more times because I have another purpose for it, but I wrote that specifically that it would read in such a way that you would understand that it's absolutely applicable to us today. So listen to the way I wrote it again. The purpose of the book is to warn Christians, okay? It's to warn Christians. His audience, 
why I added specifically Jewish Christians in this audience, their audience, that turning back to their old lives. Any of you tempted to ever turn back to your old lives? And maybe you say, well, I'm never tempted to turn back to drugs or anything. Okay, okay. Well, how about just generally turning back to getting fulfillment from that which is not Christ? You ever get tempted to do that? Sure you do. And you're lying if you say you don't. That turning back to their old lives would be futile. Futile is simply meaning that, that it's not going to work. It's not going to work. You can't turn away. Once you have tasted Christ, number one, nothing else will satisfy. I promise you that. Now, you can be led astray by demonic spirits and lying spirits and by the influence of Satan that you're going to get fulfillment in this other place. It's not going to work. It's going to be futile. You will be frustrated. You'll struggle. And in the end, you'll realize that you cannot get fulfillment anywhere else. It's futile. And it's sinful. So there's two different things. One, it's not going to work. It's futile. Two, it's sinful. To turn back to your old life and satisfaction in anything other than Christ is just outright sinful. You can't get uh, fulfillment anywhere else. If you try, you're going to displease God, displease God, and you're going to sin not only against God, but against yourself. Because you need to be leading yourself toward Christ and not away from Christ. So it's futile and it's sinful. And to follow up with that, and to exhort them to remain faithful to Christ, who is far superior. So the book, this is for you. This is for me. So we're all tempted to go back to those old ways from time to time, listening to the lies of the enemy, listening to these uh, demonic spirits whispering in our ears. Don't you remember how good it was when you did this or that? Don't you remember how fulfilling this was when you got this thing or that thing? Don't you remember how at peace you were when you did this or when you did that? And they're saying, come on back, come on back. And Jesus is standing here as a towering figure of substance that is casting all of these shadows. And, and listen, you might say, well, that's a reach, Brandon. They were actually worshiping the God of the Old Testament. They were worshiping Yahweh. They were turning back to that. You're talking about turning back to, to drugs or alcohol or greed or fame or whatever it might be. Let me set forth. Let me. Wow. <laughs> they sided. <laughs> They're excited. Uh I wish we were that excited in here. Come on, come on. Hey, let's, let's see if we can compete with them. Ready? <laughs> Listen to this. What if I told you that to turn back to your sinful lifestyle at, at the baseline is the same thing? That they were doing the same thing, right? They were seeking to get fulfillment from something other than God. They were looking to get fulfillment from something other than that which could fulfill, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the same baseline problem. We're accepting the lies of the enemy that something other than Christ can fulfill, and it just can't. And I think that most of you are aware of that. Now, whether you're living that out or not, I'm not really sure. But it says, uh, our, the rest of this, and I'll move on, uh, to remain faithful to Christ, who is far superior to everything that came before anything that would ever come after. Bottom line is, Christ... Uh, is far superior to everything that came before and anything that would ever come after. Christ is the end. He is the goal. He is the finish line. And once you have gotten to Christ, there's nowhere else to go. Now, Christ in and of himself is eternally significant, is eternally deep, is eternally engaging. He is eternally purposeful and basically he just is he is full and so once you get to christ since you're finite since you are lacking since you are uh, temporal okay once you get to christ 
That's why you had a beginning, but you have no end as believers, is because you can forever absorb the majesty and the fullness of Jesus Christ. Isn't that beautiful? Is that once you come to Christ, you continually get fuller and fuller and fuller and fuller and fuller, and there is never an end to it in Christ Jesus, continually, forever and ever and ever, just basking in his presence and enjoying him forever. Now, this book is absolutely applicable today to accomplish the very same goal for the modern reader and the hearer. We are called to maintain our faithfulness to Christ as well. It, in Hebrews 2.3, going back to the first part of that verse a while ago, uh, I'm sorry, this is supposed to be Hebrews 1.3, is that we are to uh, remain faithful to Christ, who is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So as we read these things, we are exhorted and called to, to push and to pursue and to violently seek after throwing off ourselves, casting off ourselves, and running the race fully, looking to the author and perfecter of our faith. Uh, Jesus Christ. The, throughout the book of Hebrews, there is such a magnificent picture, portrayal, and uh, opening and unpacking of who Christ is, especially in reference to who God is uh, and what the Old Covenant teaches. Uh, listen to this verse in uh, Hebrews, for it is impossible in this case. Now listen to this, in so much as you've been called there's a little feedback in this mic. I'm not sure what it is, but it's about to drive me crazy if you could look at it. For it is impossible in the case of those who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. You're called to pursue after Christ and to never turn back. For those who turn away from Christ have no plan B. There is no plan B. There is no door number two. There is no more sacrifices. This is the thrust of the argument that the old covenant was beautiful, but it was pointing to something that was perfect for eternal salvation. And if you look to that which is perfect, when you find it, when you hit Christ, when you have faith, when you are born again, then rest there, Hebrews chapter 4. Now, as it uh, still remains a time that we can enter that rest, the possibility of entering his rest, let us do that. Let us pursue after him and don't turn back. For if, for if you turn back, there no longer remains a sacrifice for you. There's nothing that can be done. There is nothing that can be done. So we have talked about the uh, audience, the recipients. We've talked about authorship. We've talked about date. We've talked about the purpose of the book. And I'm not going to spend a ton of time getting in and unpacking today, but I do just want to kind of touch on the first two verses. But to be sure, I'll probably come back next week and really unpack the first couple of verses. The first, well, the whole book is crazy deep. But the first four verses will set the tone for what the rest of the book is going to be. This powerful insight and demonstration of who Christ is and what God is doing will really open up the book and give us that starting line for where the book is going to go. So briefly, we'll touch on those, and then we're going to close it down.
So turn in your Bibles with me to uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Now, just to lightly touch on that, and hopefully to give you a taste of what's coming next week and in the rest of this book, I just want to pick out and point out just a few things. And this will be, in my opinion, let's, let me say to me, this is one of the most beautiful things that I, un, that I can possibly even start to understand about God is what's mentioned here in this first two verses. Listen to what it says. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke. God spoke. We understand through this one simple phrase that we serve a God who communicates to us. Now, oftentimes, and uh, I will give some credit to John Piper, his sermon on Hebrews chapter 1, uh, these first two verses impacted me. And he talked about this very same thing. But the fact that we, the fact that we serve a God who speaks to us is is unimaginable. It, it, is, it is absolutely mind-blowing. Now, I want you to think. You, you might say, well, why? Because God is infinite in power, infinite in wisdom. He is infinite in presence. He is omnipresent, om, omnipotent. He is omniscient. That God is, is completely outside of us. He is completely transcendent. He is not he is not held to this realm of being, that he is completely other. And this realm of being, your very being, your body, your cells that make up your skin, that makes you regenerate, that makes your hair grow out of your head and you cut it and it grows again. You're like, why does it keep doing this? It's designed by God. And Hebrews is going to tell us, and this is so cool, and I, and I wish I had time, but Hebrews is going to tell us that Jesus Christ is this God who creates. That Jesus is not just some guy, he's not just some prophet, but Jesus is the creator of the universe. Now, watch this. Not only did, okay, so you have some people out there called deists. Anybody know what a deist is? A deist, that's D-E-I-S-T-S, a deist, 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 okay, a deist is one who believes that God does exist, but God exists in a way that is far removed from all of us. In other words, a deist believes that God came down, created everything, and then he's like, all right, I'm out. And he left, right? And he left it to its own devices, okay? He created it, set the wheels in motion, spun the top, and walked. Right? That's a deist understanding. A theist is one who understands that God exists, but many theists believe that God is more interactive with his creation. So we are theists. We are monotheists, and we are Christians, okay? Trinitarian, monotheist, Christians. And we believe that God exists in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that all three are God, they all three 
together created. They all three together existed beyond uh, our understanding. They, they have existed from eternity past. And that Jesus Christ created, that God created, the Father spoke, the, the Son did, the Holy Spirit's hovering over the water. So they're all creating, they are doing this work, but they didn't just create it and walk away. But that God creates and then he remains in order to make sure that the creation is flowing in the direction that it's supposed to be flowing in. Now, a proper question at this point might say, but didn't the creation fly out of whack and go off the rails? And we say, yes. But now, depending on your theological persuasion, I guess, I would say, but that was all part of the plan. Okay? Now, if you're an open theist and you have different beliefs, you might say, well, God said it. He was really trying to hold that thing in, but the power of man's free will is such that he just, oh, it broke out. Now he's chasing them down. No, I believe that God, did I caricaturize that too roughly? Did I do that too? My, my, my bad too, my brother. Okay. <laughs> so what we would say here is that, no, God created, he already knew that Adam would fall, he already knew, that was already part of the plan. Now, he didn't make Adam fall, but he created Adam in such a way that Adam would fall and that Adam was the one that chose to fall, but God had planned around that. God knew that. He allowed Adam to fall, and the rest of redemption story is unfolded right before our very eyes, and Christ, who is a Savior, entered into the world, and the rest, you know, is human history, is there in the Scripture. Now, why do I say all that? is because this verse right here tells us that God is a God. The, the God that you serve, Marcus, you are just weird, right? But God made you that way. He is actually, he is causing you to stay alive, even right now. See, they have these different theories. Now, I'm not going to get into the science of it because I'm not a scientist, right? But I do know enough to sit back and watch the scientists and go, man, if those genius scientists, now some scientists aren't genius, right? I can name a few, but I won't. <laughs> but some, gen some science scientists are geniuses, but you know a lot of them are missing one thing. And that is the understanding that God is real and that he created us. And so you've got these scientists that are sitting here looking at these cells and all these atomic powers. And they have this theory of atomic force and these neutrons and protons or whatever tons. Or they're, they're pushing on each other and they should just fly apart. But for some reason, they stay together. And they call it, I did do some research on this. And they call, you know what they call it? Or at least back when I did my research. They called it atomic force. And, and that simply means that there's some kind of force that's holding these things together. We don't know what it is. But we're going to call it atomic force. Because, huh? Ah, you're ahead of me. Calm down. You're still in my glory. All right. No, she's right. But if that, imagine if that was a, now, now there are some Christian scientists out there, right? There are some, a few and far between, but there are, they, they exist, right? Unicorns, they, they have this theory of atomic force, that these cells, these atoms are held together by atomic force. But the book of Hebrews says the God that creates, the God that speaks is holding all things together by the word of his power. That if, that if Christ stopped speaking, it would just go, gone, right? 
we understand, okay, so, so that's all the power. So d- you understand that, right? Like you can't even hold down a job. <laughs> and Christ is holding the whole universe together. <laughs> right? Right? <laughs> right? Your, your kids is nuts and you can't get them under control. You can't hold your kids together. But Jesus is holding the whole universe. And he's not even... Look, this is, now this is just insights that I just enjoy this stuff, right? It could have said, it could have said that Jesus holds it all together by his mighty arms, right? So he's like, you know, the idea is he's been working out, you know, he's been curling Saturn, you know, he's like, I got, I got this, you know? And then he's, his strong arm, he like grabs the whole universe, he's like, right? But no, no, that's not what it says. It could have said that. The Bible oftentimes it says God's mighty arm. It speaks of his mighty arm. But you know what it says? That he holds it together by the word, by the word of his, uh, his power. What, what do you think that means? That, that Jesus, the whole chaotic universe is like trying to fly out of control, right? And he's like, nah. That's all he said. Like the whole universe is in the palm of his hand, and it's trying to get away. It's like your crazy kids, you know, that you want them to do right. And the kids is like, ah, right? And you just, just ah, and you wish that you had the power of God. Because when my kids is crazy, I wish I could just go, nah. <laughs> and all of a sudden, they go, <laughs> wouldn't that be awesome? But that's the God we serve. By the word of his power. Now. I say all that to say this mighty, magnificent, majestic, powerful God that is the creator of the universe, far superior to Moses, far superior to the angels. The Bible says the angels worship him, right? That he speaks to us. That this God not only created, not only makes sure that the creation doesn't go haywire and fly apart, but he also comes down and communicates with us. You know, think about it this way. And I read this somewhere. I would give credit if I remembered. But think about it this way. Let me see. Uh, Think about it this way. Grayson, you're a high school student. You know, you're a cool guy, but you're fairly insignificant, right? I know I'm fairly insignificant. You know, Titus, eh, he's just a kid that goes to Landrum High School, does his best. I love him, right? But, you know, he's nothing super special, right? Now, kids will tell He's not. I mean, he's very normal, right? I mean, to me, he is. I love him. I would die for him. But here's my point. Do you think that the president of the United States of America is trying to find Grayson Watson? He's trying his best to locate his number, his address, so that he could come and pay him a visit because he needs to come down and spend some time with Titus or with Grace or with me or with Keith, right? Or, or Chris Sheely, you know what I'm saying? I mean, Marcus Wharton, right? He actively said, listen, if there's a guy named Marcus Wharton, make sure that he never finds me, right? But here we have the president of the United States, who it's not so much these days, but in the past has been a fairly significant position to hold in the world, right? Now, apparently, anybody can get it. But in times past, this has been a very distinguished position, right? What would, Grace, what would it be like if a good president, you know, back in the day, would come and say, look, I would like to come and meet with you and have a conversation with you. Would that be cool? That would be awesome. Imagine an Abraham Lincoln or a JFK or, you know, somebody that, you know, you, and they, 
called you up, wouldn't you be like, who? You want to meet with who? Me? Why? <laughs> that would be the question. And you would be like, oh, man, you know, president's coming. Clean the house up. You know, get stuff in order, right? Put the fine china out, right? Put all the plastic cups up. Get the glasses out. That would be amazing. But here, it's not the president coming to see a citizen. No, it's the God of the entire universe that spoke it into existence, that hung around to make sure it didn't go crazy and haywire outside of his control. He speaks and holds it to, together by the word of his power, and he also communicates with us. Now, that's all I've got for you for today. We're going to see how he communicates and how, how bad he wants to communicate with you. I'll give you a hint. Long, long ago, he spoke in many ways, in many times, and in many ways. And the idea here is that this great God who created everything would come and speak with you. And he's done it in a variety of times so as not to miss. He has done it in a variety of ways. Why? Because we're so ignorant, right? We, we hear this way, some of us. Some of us, he's just talking away, talking, communicating away, and we're like, oh, right? So he tries it in another way. Then he tries it in another way. He's got laws. He's got prophecies. He's written wisdom literature. He's got proverbs. Man, he's got poetry. He's got historical narrative. Man, just so many ways and so many times. So here's the idea is that the God of the universe, the eternal God that's existed before anything did ever exist, there was no time in which he did not exist, has spoken creation into existence by the word of his power. He hung around and stayed so that he might hold it together and to make sure it's going in the direction that he desired for it to go in. Not only that, but he was there in the midst of the creation all alone through the lips of men, prophets, and, and those who would write continually and many times and in many ways communicating with his creation, speaking to them, calling to them, rebuking them, rebirthing them in these cycles and bringing, giving them judges, giving them kings, giving them warnings, don't go. And he is continually ebbing and flowing. But there's coming and has come a time where, as opposed into those last days, he was speaking in all of those different ways, that he has spoke in these last days through his son. And that's a whole nother level, a whole nother level of communication that we're going to begin to unfold next week. If you guys will come up today, as we looked at the intro, a lot of information I threw at you, I know. But today, as you hear the beginning parts of the book of Hebrews and the introduction uh, to that book, I call for you to do this, is to think about how you've responded to the God of the universe who, who set aside his divine attributes to come down here and dwell among us to have conversation with you. And I want you to think about this. I want you to think about this. Are, are you all with me still? I know they came up here, but look at me now. If the president, okay, listen to me. If the president, a good president of the United States, called you up and said, I'm coming to your house tomorrow at 3 o'clock, what would your response to that be? 
now. And he said, no, I'm coming. Now, how much different and real is your response, would your response be to that than what you have done when the God of heaven has made the call? He has come. He has done the work to meet with you. Would you be more real, willing and more excited and more antsy getting ready to communicate with the President of the United States than you are with this great King who is calling to you even, even today? Even today, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords calls unto you to come and meet with you and you with Him and for, and for a sit-down meeting that you would eat over dinner and that he might tell you all about the goodness of himself and to show you how your life could be better than you could ever imagine it being. Are you responding to Christ accordingly? That's a good question. And I hope that you probe that and ask yourself that and really answer it honestly. Are you excited? Are you passionate? Are you actually opening the door when Christ is knocking? Or are you just standing there? Let's all stand to our feet. Respond accordingly as God is calling. Christ is supreme. Christ is supreme.